My name is Bert Newton, and this is the first episode in a series entitled Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. The title of this series may sound a little provocative and dramatic, but I think I can make the case that the Gospel of Matthew is subversive not only in its message, but even in its form. And I want to start with the passage with which Matthew begins his Gospel. Now, it might seem obvious to begin at the beginning, but many people don't begin at the beginning of Matthew because Matthew begins his Gospel with a genealogy. And genealogies are the passages that even the most dedicated readers and studiers of the Bible tend to skip. There is this beautiful and ironic story about the making of the 1964 Italian film The Gospel According to Matthew. The director and auteur of the film, Pier Paolo Pasolini, got the idea to make the movie when he was trapped in a hotel room with nothing to read but the Bible. He was trapped there, ironically, because the Pope was in town causing traffic jams by people clamoring to see him and making it impossible for Pasolini to leave his hotel room. So Pasolini read the four Gospels straight through and became obsessed with making a film out of one of them, using the actual words of the Gospel as the script. All this was even more ironic because Pasolini identified as a gay Marxist atheist. Well, he made the movie, and with the blessing of the Catholic Church, it became a worldwide, critically acclaimed film. But the ironies kept piling up. Even though it had the blessing of the Catholic Church, many politically and religiously conservative segments of Italian society were enraged and scandalized by the film, claiming that it was a Marxist propaganda film. The problem was, you see, that many of these pietistic critics were not familiar with the actual text of the Gospels and so found the text of Matthew subversive when spoken and acted out on the big screen. So this is a wonderfully ironic and subversive story about a gay Marxist atheist who makes a film using the verbatim text of Matthew which greatly disturbs conservative Christians. But one thing has to be noted about the film. Even Pasolini skipped the genealogy. Everyone skips the genealogy. It gets no respect. Well, we're actually going to look at and unpack the genealogy in Matthew. And I hope to show that this genealogy is not only subversive in its content, but also in its form. What I mean by that is that the genealogy in Matthew is a text that deconstructs itself. It is actual parody. In fact, I call it a parody of pedigree. Now, before I jump into the actual genealogy, I want to make the argument that this kind of text is not uncommon in the Bible. I call these texts trickster texts because they trick us by making us think that they are saying one thing when they are really saying another, usually the opposite. 
One example of this type of text is the praise of King Solomon found in 1 Kings 10. In this text, we read that the greatness of Solomon was evidenced by his great wealth, his many horses, especially the horses that he imported from Egypt. It reads as great praise, but put alongside the law code in Deuteronomy that describes the legal limits that a king must adhere to, we begin to see that this text in 1 Kings is not great praise of Solomon. Rather, it is a subtle condemnation of Solomon. You see, the code in Deuteronomy 17, 14-20 states specifically that a king must not set himself above everyone else, that he must not acquire great wealth, that he must not have many horses, and that he certainly should not get those horses from Egypt. Anyone familiar with the law code in Deuteronomy would read the first king's text as documentation of Solomon's flagrant violation of the law. But you wouldn't know that by simply reading the text in 1 Kings 10. The tone of that text screams praise. Go back and read these two texts yourself. 1 Kings 10, 14-29 and Deuteronomy 17, 14-20. So I call the text in 1 Kings 10 a trickster text because it seems to be saying one thing, but upon closer examination, it is saying the opposite. And there are others. The story in Genesis of the rise of Joseph from slavery to the second most powerful person in Egypt reads like a rags-to-riches hero story. But in Genesis 47, 13-26, we read that Joseph exploited the disaster of a seven-year famine to enrich the Pharaoh and make all the people of Egypt his slaves. Verses 20-21 read, So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe upon them, and the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other. The story of Joseph and his brothers brings to a close the book of Genesis. The next book opens with a situation in which their descendants have been made slaves in Egypt. The irony of the Joseph story, when we read it, paying close attention, and when we continue to the very next book of the Torah, is inescapable. But the tone of the story would lead us to think of Joseph as a hero. And that's how he's remembered in our Sunday school classes. Now, I'm not sure why the author of the Joseph story, or perhaps the redactors, told the story this way, but it does seem to be a trickster text. Genesis, in fact, seems to be full of trickster texts. The narratives of the patriarchs that precede the Joseph story are full of irony. Abraham, the great father of the nation, is twice a coward who tells his wife to say that she is his sister rather than his wife, putting her at risk in order to protect himself. His son Isaac does the same thing. And then Jacob is himself a trickster and a mama's boy. Not a good thing in the highly patriarchal culture in which the story was written. Jacob tricks his brother Esau out of his birthright and then tricks his father into giving him the blessing that should have gone to Esau. 
Jacob is in turn tricked by Laban, but then turns the tables on Laban and outwits him. And just keep reading the story. Nothing turns out as you might think. Jacob fears Esau, but Esau, the father of the Edomites, Israel's mortal enemy, Esau forgives Jacob. And Jacob says that seeing Esau is like seeing the face of God. These are the stories of Israel's fathers, cowards, tricksters, people needing to be forgiven by the enemy who then becomes the face of God. You have to be impressed with the people who include this stuff, this self-critique in their national canon of literature. Lots of irony, lots of tricksterism, both in the stories and in the form of the texts themselves. Those stories are the first book of Torah, the first book of the Bible. That's how the Bible begins. Well, this is how Matthew begins. Let's read the genealogy. Yeah, let's do it. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. <clears throat> wow. Now, the general pattern of this genealogy, and any genealogy in a patriarchal society, is this man fathered this man who fathered this man, and so on. It is an almost unbroken line of fathers. Almost. And here is where we get to the important exceptions to the rule. You may have noticed the major exceptions. There were five of them. Five women break into this male lineage and at a literary level, bust the whole thing up. They reveal the sins of the fathers and expose the bankruptcy of pedigree. The first woman who breaks the father-son pattern is Tamar. Now, many of us probably do not know the story of Tamar, but the original audience of this genealogy 
would have known it well. The story is found in, of all places, Genesis. I'll let you go back and read the story on your own, but Tamar plays the part of a prostitute in order to bring about justice for herself. The story is full of irony and exposing the hypocrisy and the sin of the patriarch. That's the first exception, the first woman to crash the patriarchal party. Tamar played the part of a prostitute, but the next woman, Rahab, was a prostitute. Now, what is interesting about Rahab is that not only is there no basis outside of Matthew for including her in this lineage, she is even placed in the wrong century in this genealogy. The importance of noting that is to emphasize that this genealogy is a literary creation intended to tell a message. Its author does not appear to be interested in merely laying out a historical factual pedigree. The author has introduced Tamar, playing the part of a prostitute, and now the author introduces into the lineage Rahab, who actually was a prostitute. The next woman to charge into this patriarchal construction is Ruth. Now, the Sunday school version of her story comes across like a feel-good romance tale. But if we read the text honestly, we discover that she seduces Boaz to get what she needs. So at this point, we have quite a bit of sexual scandal in the supposed lineage of Jesus. There are other parts of Ruth's story that are relevant as well. She is an outsider, an immigrant refugee. But for the sake of time, we'll proceed to the next feminine invader. Now, talk about sexual scandal. Here's one for the record books. We come to perhaps the central father of the story, King David. The genealogy started out by telling us that Jesus is a son of Abraham and David. And Jesus is often called son of David throughout Matthew's gospel. Now, the author could have simply told us that David was the father of Solomon, but that's not what we get. The author not only mentions who the mother was, but instead of using her name, the author reminds us that she was someone else's wife. The text reads, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In other words, the author forces us to recall the story of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. Again, we have a Sunday school version of this story in which David and Bathsheba have an affair, and in an effort to cover it up, David winds up having her husband Uriah killed. Even the Sunday school version of this story is pretty bad. But the actual story is even worse. It's not about an affair. In the actual story found in 2 Samuel 11, King David has Bathsheba brought to him, and then he has his way with her. This is no affair. It is a forcible rape. No woman brought to the king by the king's men can refuse him. 
Then after killing her husband, he makes her part of his harem. So the author of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus goes out of his way to remind us that David was a rapist and a murderer. What is going on here? The central historical father of Jesus' lineage has been literarily cut down. This genealogy has lost all credibility. And that brings us to the final woman, Mary. If the story of Bathsheba completely destroyed the credibility of the lineage, the story of Mary cuts it off completely. The patriarchal pattern breaks. We read, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Did you get that? Jesus turns out to be the son of Mary, but not Joseph. Therefore, he is not the son of any of those guys in the genealogy. The genealogy is a complete joke. It is, as I said earlier, a parody of pedigree. Now, sons were commonly adopted into families during this time, so the narrative can proceed. But the author has let us know that the real lineage is a fake. Now, why would he do that? Well, a central theme in the gospel is that it does not matter who your father is. In other words, it doesn't matter what tribe or nation you come from, whether you are of noble birth or of peasant birth. The kingdom of heaven, the new society dawning in the movement that Jesus starts, levels all hierarchies, breaks down all dividing walls, and obliterates all boundaries. In chapter 3, John the Baptist will ridicule the idea that lineage gives anyone privilege. He will mock the notion that being a descendant of Abraham is of any consequence when he says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And then in chapter 22, Jesus will repudiate the idea that he is a son of David. And throughout the gospel, as we will see, Jesus will cross over into Gentile territory to bring Gentiles into his movement of a transnational society. He will challenge elite wisdom and authority, demonstrating that peasant wisdom is superior. All hierarchies will be leveled, all boundaries obliterated. Lineage will be cast aside as the outcast of society are brought to the center. And it all starts with a parody of pedigree. One more thing I want to say, though, before we end. Although the male lineage turns out to be fake, perhaps the author presents us with an alternate lineage through the five women. Perhaps the author is cleverly telling us that Jesus is born not from the human Davidic line, but through the Holy Spirit from a spiritual lineage of women. Seducers, prostitutes, victims, Heroes, Gentiles, 
poor and outcast. That's where our salvation comes from. That's where our deliverance comes from. That's where the kingdom of God, the new society, emerges. My name is Bert Newton, and this has been Episode 1 of Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.